market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett and I am the deputy political editor at The Paper. With me this week, as always, is our political editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, welcome back. It's a brand new year. Everything's changed. Everything's new and uh, nothing's changed here. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good summary. <laughs> we are coming to you on Thursday afternoon from Parliament, as per usual. Um, by this time tomorrow, when you're listening to this podcast, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, will have met with Nicola Sturgeon, the First Minister, in Inverness, we're led to believe, as part of a Freeport's announcement that's due tomorrow. Alistair, take us through what's happening. I don't know, there's going to be a, a tete-a-tete, I think, over a hotel room table and uh, wine, yeah. maybe. I so don't know. Sunak's Sunak. famously teetotaler, of course. <laughs> Rishi Sunak coming up to Scotland... It's obviously always a big deal when a Prime Minister does a kind of visit to Scotland. I've been to quite a few of them in the past. When Boris Johnson was Prime Minister, um, obviously when Boris Johnson came up, there was always a kind of element of surrealness to it. Mm-hmm. He did um, various kind of, uh, we call them huddles in journalism, huddles with journalists, basically kind of mini press conferences where you can ask questions, ask whatever you want, uh, just involving the kind of Scottish Hollywood political lobby. He did huddles in a kind of, garage on a farm in the middle of Aberdeenshire. He did one at a distillery. He did one at REF Lossiemouth, mm-hmm. um, Fast Lane, I think, as well. Crucially, all of those things have in common that they were areas where the general public can't really access. So yes. whenever Boris Johnson came up to Scotland, it always seemed like they were very keen to get him away from the general public. He never did these kind of things in the central belt. He never mm-hmm. did them close to kind of population areas. It was always very carefully stage managed. And particularly with Lossiemouth and Fast Lane, it was, you know, you're talking high security and military yeah. bases, basically. <laughs> you could only get in if you were there to, if you're accredited media, basically. So no sneaking of anti-Boris banners in there. Yeah, it was very careful. And one of the things they always had in their minds is that when he did make a public appearance, when he came outside Butte House to meet Nicola Sturgeon, he was booed by mm-hmm. a bunch of protesters and kind of members of the public that gathered there. Uh, and it wasn't a very good image for them, because mm-hmm. when you watched on TV at the time, I mean, the boos were incredibly loud. I was there, it was... Pretty overwhelming. You, you took part. <laughs> <laughs> I did not. <laughs> so that's a kind of background to this. Liz Truss famously didn't want anything to do with Nicola Sturgeon, accused her of being an attention seeker who's best ignored. Rishi Sunak seems to be very much uh, having a radical departure from that. He's trying to fall relations. He's trying to kind of build some kind of bridges there. And I think the relationship between Nicola Sturgeon and Rishi Sunak seems to be better, certainly than Liz Truss, because there was a relationship there, but it seems to be better than her relationship was with Boris Johnson. So they are expected to have a a dinner in the Inverness area, we're told, tonight. Obviously, by the time you're listening to this podcast, this will have happened. Uh, We're told it's a kind of private working dinner. One or two officials will be there. You know, it won't be... It'll be a very kind of low-key, informal affair. She's expected to bring up things like the UK government's anti-strike laws, uh, things like the NHS crisis in Scotland and England, uh, Scotland and the rest of the UK, and potentially the constitution as well. I think we should fully expect that to come up. One of the things she's not expected to bring up 
is the Gender Recognition Act, the Gender Recognition Bill that went through Holyrood. Um, the MSPs voted through before Christmas and the UK government is now sort of threatening to block, essentially. But Rishi Sunak might bring that up, but Nicola Sturgeon certainly isn't expected to. Um, we'll probably go on to talk about that in a little bit. But I think it'll be interesting to see what comes out of that. Um, and I think you should expect, you know, some media engagement with Rishi Sunak during his visit to Scotland. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what he says in the back of that. There'll be lots of questions around the constitution, lots of questions around gender recognition, what the UK government plans to do. But also just kind of UK-wide things like the health service, the kind of state of the country, the, the UK government's anti-strike law plans, which are opposed by the Scottish government. So there's plenty to talk about. Uh, and Prime Minister, your visits to Scotland are always are always a big deal. To be fair, they're quite rare as well in recent years. I don't mainly because of COVID. I don't think Boris had came up particularly regularly once every few months. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, it's the reason why he's coming up is to announce these these green free ports as, as they've been rebranded in Scotland, um, expected to be Cromarty Firth and the Fourth near Edinburgh as well. These are big Rishi Sunak policies. Of course, Sunak came up effectively with the policy of, of, of free ports in, a, in his previous life um, before he was Prime Minister. And it's, just, it's a big deal. It's, you know, the, the UK government working together closely with the Scottish government on a big economic policy. And it'll be interesting to see how much Nicola Sturgeon steers into that in both any media appearances that her or her government do, you know, tomorrow and over the weekend, given their kind of lukewarm support of Green Freeports. Well, it was an interesting history to it because they initially were pretty unkeen on them in general, Freeports. Uh, they're obviously things that you see elsewhere in the world. They're kind of tax-cutting measures to encourage business growth in these areas. Uh, but then the Scottish government sort of rebranded them as Green Ports, become this kind of green free ports thing where there's kind of climate targets built into them. Yeah. Uh, there's all sorts of sustainability that's part of them as well. And various areas of Scotland were extremely keen to get involved. Yeah. So you had places like Cromarty, places like Aberdeen, which yeah. I think will be disappointed if we're correct to say that they're not going to be getting this. Places like your, your right at the first or fourth as well. We're extremely keen to benefit from this. So I think it is an announcement that is coordinated with the Scottish government yeah. and councils local authorities as well. So the Scottish government will have some kind of presence tomorrow, I would have thought. It was always a tricky one for them to manoeuvre their way around at first. Yeah, and Kate, Kate Falls, I think, from memory, was was very much involved in the discussions about what exactly was a green freeport and all of that sort of stuff. And obviously she's not about um, on, on maternity leave, so she won't, she won't be there. You mentioned gender recognition. We've not spoken about it on this podcast due to the fact that you did a really kind thing just pre-Christmas and went on holiday for Christmas, just as the Gender Recognition Reform Act was coming through Parliament, leaving poor little old me stuck in this building for three I days did the straight. the first day of it, come on. This is... I'm just, just saying there was someone here, you know, till late hours on Wednesday and Thursday, <laughs> suffering away. But anyway, <laughs> we both witnessed quite a lot of the game playing that went on over those three days. I don't know if we want to cover that before we go on to what might happen tomorrow, tonight and tomorrow in discussions between the two governments, but it was certainly a, a moment in time um, for this parliament to witness the sorts of shenanigans, to use a potentially pejorative phrase, that over the three days of, of discussion over the bill. Yeah, I mean, just to recap, it's obviously the gender recognition bill is aims to kind of make it easier for trans people to mm -hmm. change their legal gender. Uh, and part of it is that 
it lowers the age in which you can do this from 18 to 16, so 16, 17 will be able to go through the process of getting a gender recognition certificate. There's kind of other aspects to it as well. It massively shortens the time that you have to go through this process in from two years, I think, to three months, roughly. You're right, when I was in Holyrood just before Christmas, it was, it's quite funny, well, not funny is the wrong words, it's interesting because it passed Holyrood easily. Absolutely. You know, it was yeah. a, a large majority of MSPs passed through Holyrood, yeah. and that was always expected to be the case. It yeah. was never expected to be a tight vote or a vote that the government could potentially lose because they had the support of, you know, the Greens, Liberal Democrats, most yeah. of Labour, and even a couple of Conservative MSPs as well. Mm. But it did kind of spark this huge controversy outside Holyrood and inside Holyrood. So there were MSPs, Ash Reagan, Ash Denham, who was a minister, an SNP minister, and resigned because she couldn't support this legislation. There were, I think, nine SNP MSPs in total who rebelled against the party whip. There were a couple of Labour MSPs who had to step down from the front bench because mm. they couldn't support the legislation and the party had had a party whip on it. Um, and while the Tories were mostly very much against it, there were a couple of Tory MSPs, Jamie Green, um, I think Jackson Carlaw as well. Sandish Gulhani as well, the health spokesman. Who were supportive of the legislation. So it kind of divided uh, a lot of people in Holyrood. And there was protests from the public gallery as well. There's obviously a lot of strong feelings about this. There are very high profile people like J.K. Rowling mm -hmm. who feel very strongly about it um, or against the legislation or certainly aspects of it. And I think it's, it's one of these issues that it has provoked a lot of debate and a lot of controversy. And it was it's sort of strange that it passed through Holyrood so easily while all this is going on. Um, but the reason it took so long to go through Holyrood is because the Conservatives were using a lot of tactics, for example, raising points of order repeatedly, kind of putting things up to a vote, even if they were never going to pass, which is pretty common in Holyrood anyway. Yeah. But basically tactics that dragged it out. They would say that they wanted this to be properly debated in Parliament and for all the amendments and the kind of nitty-gritty of the law to be properly debated, whereas the government was, you know, in the, in the view of much of the Conservative Party, was trying to steamroller it through mm -hmm. before Christmas uh, and kind of reducing, they would say, scrutiny on the bill. But I think a lot of SNP MSPs, maybe Labour as well, would accuse the Tories of trying to kind of filibuster, essentially, trying just to kind of talk this issue and create delays in Holyrood. So it was a bit of a drama before Christmas. It was. I don't think I've ever actually seen, because I, I was here on the Wednesday night, obviously on the Tuesday, we kind of got an indication that it was going to run late and it was going to be a long night. And we kind of, I, from memory at least, it, we'd been, <laughs> we kind of steeled ourselves for it and for it all to have been over on the Wednesday. And then the Wednesday came and the same thing happened. And I, I, I remember being in, in, in the bar in Holyrood um, with, a, with a couple of colleagues um, and seeing the faces of some of the MSPs as they walked by, you know, trying to get some food or trying to get some water in, in the middle of a break. And you could tell that this was draining the energy out of them because they had to be all of them had to be here, or at least voting constantly. You have to pay constant attention. And many of them were looking at it and going, this is a ridiculous scenario for us to have been on a bill that has um, spent so much time in front of politicians, either through scrutiny of consultation responses or whatever. What I thought was interesting overall was that the, there's been a lot of response since then to the tactics of, of the Tories. I'm interested in your, in your view on it mainly from the Green Party, but also from the SNP, that you know, this, is a, this is a sudden change of tact from the Conservatives who now view undermining Parliament as a political objective. And I don't know whether or not you think that's a fair you know, kind of summation of their tactics over the GRR and whether it extends across 
everything else that goes on here or whether or not it is just a case of this bill they believed was was being rushed through and that that needed to be stopped anyway possible yeah i mean i think this ties in with the views of Stephen Kerr, who is the uh, Scottish Conservative MSP and written a piece, I think, for the Daily Telegraph, basically about Holyrood not working anymore, the system being broken, because in his view, the government kind of tightly controls it. Opposition parties don't can't really debate things in the way they want to. There's a kind of lack of um, proper debate and scrutiny in Holyrood. And I think, I mean, certainly the Conservatives were using filibuster tactics. They were trying to use the parliamentary system to make that bill process as difficult as possible. Absolutely. But I guess from their point of view, their problem is with how they would see the Scottish government introducing legislation, how the Scottish government goes about its business in parliament. Their problem probably isn't really with the Scottish parliament as an institution. It's how they view this particular legislation having gone through as a representation of a wider problem in Holyrood. And I think you know, putting this legislation aside, there is certainly an issue in Holyrood in terms of the amount of scrutiny that goes on. I mean, I think there just is. And you've got former people like former SNP Health Secretary Alex Neil, who has been a bit, to be fair, a bit of a foreign in the side of the current Scottish government. But, I mean, he's raised this view before. I mean, he's been saying it again recently, but it's something that he said a good few years ago as well, that in his view, there was a lot of, you know, quote unquote, nodding donkeys in Holyrood. You know, MSPs are just filling up the back benches, but not properly carrying out their role of scrutiny. And I think that is a perception. And maybe uh, whether or not that's true, there is definitely an issue of scrutiny in Holyrood tied into the way the committees work. Well, we're sat in a committee room, I was about to say, you know, these these rooms hear a lot of evidence and a lot of the work that gets done is often turned into relatively mealy-mouthed reports because of the government majority on, on a committee. And there's a question whether or not that's fit for purpose due to the fact that the SNP Greens have a majority and that in reality, the committees were never envisioned to work that way. Yeah. So it's an interesting one. We'll just circle back on the GRR, talk quickly about the possibility of the UK government intervening and blocking it. I believe they've got until, I think, midway through next week to decide whether or not to block it. They would do this through a Section 35 order, which is written into the Scotland Act. Effectively, in layman's terms, you know, if they believe that an active parliament, the Scottish Parliament, has an undue effect on anything effectively within the UK government's purview, they can block it if they feel like it. Never been done before. It would be a big step. Been a lot written about it by various legal legal heads. Do we think it's a good strategic decision from the UK government? I was talking to a Tory MSP about this um, recently who thinks it's a bit of a potential problem for the government in the long term. I'm not sure if it's a good political decision. I don't know. I mean, a lot of the argument kind of stems from the impact of the GRR legislation on the Equality Act and whether it changes the definition of sex, which has all sorts of, the arguing goes, impacts on single-sex spaces, organisations, all-female shortlists, even single-sex schools. And there's a paper out by Policy Exchange, which is a right-leaning think tank, that was kind of saying that the UK government can and should try and block royal assent for this bill. I mean, I suppose... They might think that it's, if they genuinely think that this is going to have some kind of repercussions across the UK, then I can see why they might intervene. I think politically, you're setting up a row with the Scottish government. And it's 
debatable whether or not that's a route they want to go down on this particular issue. I mean, it hands the Scottish Government a very easy way of turning what has been a very divisive internally you know, bill between, within the SNP into a classic SNP division of the UK government doesn't respect the building that we're sat in. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know... Okay. I don't know enough of like the kind of legal... I mean, I've read, obviously, the policy exchange paper, which was written by a, a law lecturer, mm. and, you know, opinions differ on this. So it could be a, a tricky road for them to go down, I think. But, yeah, if they genuinely think this legislation will have a kind of wider impact across the UK, they may feel like that's the route they have to go down. Well, from the Scottish Parliament to Westminster, um, here is a update from the goings-on this week in London from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown. Hello and welcome to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent. At the time of recording, things are very bleak in London, as they so often are, especially if you were unfortunate enough to have watched Prime Minister's Questions. For those of you who don't know, Prime Minister's Questions is a debate, or at least it pretends to be a debate, and it's where two people say something to each other and the other one has to say something back that has nothing to do with what the person previously said. The Prime Minister is very, very good at it. So I go to a lot of PMQs, not just because I find it interesting, but also because it's the job that I do. Again, this full of surprises, this podcast. This week was particularly frustrating because I think it's made very clear what the battle line is going to be for the next general election and just how vague both parties are on the key issues. So Sir Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, opened PMQs, basically criticising Rishi Sunak's handling of the strikes, which have plunged so much of Britain's chaos with workforces across the public sector, underpaid and unhappy that their pay is not in line with inflation and their hours are not great either. So Rishi Sunak, instead of addressing this, perhaps not if not failure of government, but the fact that no breakthroughs have been reached, and instead has passed some anti-strike legislation, went on about how, you know, Sakir is on the side of the strikers and they are his, you know, paymasters in the unions, which is a traditional argument to criticise Labour with. But the problem is, Keir Starmer isn't supporting the unions. He is not supporting the strikers. He is doing decidedly nothing because it's considered a political trap by the Labour Party. So it's better to say nothing than to be directly involved with the chaos. And this is, you know, it's not very good for debate. If one person says, you're not doing very well, and the other person can go, well, what would you do? And and no answer is forthcoming. And it's the same on the NHS. You know, we hear Sakir criticise the handling of the NHS. We've seen waiting times soar under Conservative government. Um, we are still waiting for the 40 hospitals promised by Boris Johnson. Um, I can't believe I couldn't trust him. He seemed so, so reliable uh, and like a good guy. And so he can criticise the Conservative Party for that. And then the Prime Minister can go, OK, what would Labour do on the NHS? And again, it isn't quite clear. And I mean, you know, I, I work in Westminster, so I... You know, not to toot my own horn, but like if they did have a really good plan, I would like to think I knew about it. But at the moment, ambiguity is the name of the game because the Brit and this is, you know, again, this is not a cheery episode. Britain's finances are in such dire straits. There is no easy answer. I mean, we have heard from the Labour leader repeatedly that, you know, austerity is bad, but we can't just suddenly start spending loads, which 
it's saying austerity is bad, but you know, essentially, there's not going to be there's not going to be a lot of money. There's not going to be the huge swathes of investment that so much of the public sector actually needs. And when the debate is you're bad and you don't have an idea, it's very very difficult to be. You know, there's not a lot of policy that we can actively engage with on either side, other than you know the the introduction of the of the, stri- uh, the anti strikes bill, which is so vague unions are calling it illegal and uh, you know if if you're unaware it's a bill that essentially will allow employers to sue employees who do not uh, meet the minimum requirements of work which you know is a very very brave plan from the prime minister given that most of the public uh, as all the polling shows support striking they might not well at least they support pay rises they might not support directly the act of striking but they do believe in better conditions so it's a very bold move to create to create all the conditions for a narrative of, you know, the rich against the poor. Um, elsewhere in PMQs, Stephen Flynn um, made his first appearance of the year, and uh, unfortunately, it just wasn't very good. He is the new SNP Westminster leader. It's a very he's a charismatic man, and he is confident, and he stands up at PMQs, which obviously they all have to do. But he really, he almost squares up, you know, like Liam Gallagher about to belt out a song uh, and say, as he were, and he doesn't just look at the prime minister, he looks across at all the all the Tory MPs, daring them to interrupt him. But when it comes to his questions, it's more of a list than an actual question, you know, more of a comment than a question. He just goes, I think, he, you know, this, this week he went Brexit, the recession, waiting times. And then he essentially said, you know, is it worth being in the union? What's the point? Which is, I mean, he also mentioned energy, which allows Prime Minister to go, well, <laughs> speaking of energy, here's the stuff we're doing. Without a hook to pin the Prime Minister down, it's, you know, it's a monologue. It's a statement. It is not really challenging the Prime Minister as very mm. politely building the steps for him to climb up uh, and put the ball in the net and say exactly what he wants to do, which, you know, again, is not necessarily good for debate. So it's just been a bit grim, really, uh, a bit like the weather. You know, I yearn for a crumb of content, um, just a little morsel of policy to, t- to tell you about. But unfortunately, none's been forthcoming. But, you know, next week uh, is the deadline for the UK government to decide if it's going to block the gender uh, re- recognition reform. Uh, they're asking the other wrong order bill, which obviously they oppose so vehemently they have yet to decide, they have yet to block it. I can tell you privately, a lot of Conservative MPs do not support blocking it. They believe in trans rights. They believe that it should be easier to self-ID. Uh, they just believe in it so profoundly they won't say anything public. But, you know, maybe they will once the UK government drops it. For all that and more, do stay tuned to The Scotsman. I've been Alexander Brown, and you, quite fortunately, haven't. Cheers. And from PMQs into FMQs, let's have a little bit of a chat about what went on in the chamber today. Both Anasawa and Douglas Ross went in on health. Um, it's been a regular issue brought up by both of the main opposition parties pretty much since the start of um, this parliamentary year back in September. Take us through what the issues were, what was brought up. And I have to say, one of the best case studies, almost as if it was written for journalists from the Liberal Democrats as well. Yes, you're right. This has been an issue that's been brought up uh, at FMQs week in, week out for months now. And kind of the crisis in the NHS 
uh, across the UK is something that's been hitting the headlines uh, over the winter period. We're all very aware of the kind of spiralling waiting times, the impact on A&E, the impact on ambulance services. Um, and it's all quite grim and quite frightening, to be honest. Um, there was a press conference that Nicola Sturgeon held on Monday, where she kind of took to the podium, flanked by uh, an official, I think in this case, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, and Hamza Youssef, the Health Secretary. And it was a horrible flashback to the depths of COVID, mm. you know, <laughs> particularly for, I think for the government and for journalists watching, it's just, it just felt exactly like yeah, that kind of feeling of dread you got yeah. during these kind of briefings during COVID where there's just this flurry of extremely depressing statistics and this kind of acceptance that the situation is quite dire yes. and the government is saying they're doing their best to you know, try and turn it around or try and do something about it. And I think it was no surprise that both Labour and the Scottish Conservatives brought it up at FMQs today. Actually, I think Douglas Ross, the Scottish Tory leader, was more effective than Anna Sarwar. Yeah. He had a really worrying case study. And I think it was, I might get some of the details wrong in this, I hope I don't. It was an 80-year-old man who I think had been left for about 12 hours despite his family phoning 999 multiple times. He'd fallen uh, and broken his neck. With well. a broken neck, yeah. I think it was on Hogmanay. It's just a really horrible example of some of the pressures that were on the health service. I think the family were seeing when the ambulance crew turned up, they were brilliant. But obviously getting them there was difficult just because of the pressures in the system. And I think case studies like that really hit home and they're quite hard for, we've talked about this before, when you've got an individual study, case study like that, it's quite hard for Nicola Sturgeon to come back on that because yeah. it's a real world example. It's not just a flurry of figures you can kind of deflect from. Uh, like you say, the Scottish Liberal Democrats had a, an almost made for newspapers case study involving a, um, a Ukrainian uh, refugee, I think called Maria, a 22 year old from the Glasgow area who had uh, tried to go to her G GP. She had um, a kind of medical condition and tried to go to her GP. GP to get tests done and was basically uh, presented with a, a kind of period of waiting that was so long that as far as she was concerned it was easier to go back to Ukraine, a war-torn country, and seek treatment there, yeah. which is just so incredibly damaging That's incredible. <laughs> in terms of what it says about the health service and what it says about people's confidence and getting the treatment they need. And that was brought up by Alex Cole Hamilton in the chamber and yeah, I mean, like you say, it was, it was the kind of thing that is almost made for journalists in the sense that it's so eye-opening and such a frightening example of what's going on. I think Anna Sarwar was good. You know, you kind of brought up the health, the kind of state of the health service as well, but I just thought Douglas Ross was a bit more, just this week, a bit, a bit better on it, I think. Do we think that, um, obviously, Anna, Douglas Ross finished his questions with uh, something we've heard multiple times from both parties, albeit never from Anna Sarwar, which is, you know, time to sack the health secretary, Hamza Youssef. Do we think that Hamza is under pressure um, and that he is teetering? Because I think it's interesting, I talked to some people in parliament, particularly on the conservative side, who feel that they were bounced into calling for Youssef's resignation and feel that that was a strategic mistake given the fact that he isn't about to be sacked. There's no indication that Nicola Sturgeon is about to sack her effective number three. Um, and also, you haven't heard it from Anna Sawa yet. We do hear it from Jackie Bailey, the deputy leader of Labour. I think that's one and the same thing. I think if you hear it from the deputy leader uh, and it's sent out officially in a press release, it's mm. the same as Anna Sawa saying it. It's Scottish Labour have called for him to go as well. Do, do we think he's under pressure? Do we think he's ready, he's, he is potentially going to get sacked over the current performance? I, I think he's under pressure because the health service is under pressure and he's in charge of the health service. Um, I think... The role of health secretary is completely thankless. Mm -hmm. I think it's such a difficult role. 
Nicola Sturgeon herself has done in the past. She knows only too well how hard it is to do. It's by far the hardest job in Cabinet, I think. Yeah. And Hamza Yusuf can't really be blamed for what is a crisis across the UK and beyond, to be honest, in the health service this winter. Having said that, you know, there are things that the Scottish Government could have done and didn't. I think you speak to people involved in the NHS, they're quite clear that uh, there were warnings about the state of the NHS, there were decisions the Scottish Government made in the past that have helped to exacerbate the situation. Um, but, so, I mean, I think he's under pressure, but I would be surprised if Nicola Sturgeon decided to sack him, to be honest, just, just because the extent to which he personally is to blame for this, I think, is debatable. Um, and you can have conversations about how effective he has been in the role, which I think maybe some opposition parties would see him as being, you know, there's a weakness there, that he's maybe not been as effective as he always could have been. But, yeah, I'd be surprised if he actually did get did get sacked over this. It'll be interesting to see where it goes and where the debate goes, because at some point, you know, from a position of the opposition, you become, you look quite weak and uninfluential if you've been calling for someone's head for so long and that they don't go even if the crisis doesn't get any better. You do, and we've seen this before. We've seen this before with other health secretaries. Uh, I remember when Jean Freeman was health secretary, there was a lot of calls for her to go over various things. Um, I think at the time there was scandals in hospitals and uh, there was repeated calls for her to go. And again... She never did. She never did. And yeah, it's just being in that role, you will have people calling for your head at some point. And it's just something you're going to have to put up with. Potentially as well, I think Nicola Sturgeon, having been health secretary, as you say, understands it. But also, she gets calls to resign every month from various people for things that probably aren't considered resignation matters. I wonder if, you know, in, in Scotland, we're at a point where calls for res resignations are made too often. I think, well, yeah, I mean, they lose their impact a bit if you're Absolutely. just doing it all the time. And I think from Nicola Sturgeon's point of view, why is she suddenly going to turn around now and be like, oh, actually, actually Douglas yes, Ross, you've got a point. <laughs> Hamza Yusuf, I'm sorry, you've got to go. It just seems extremely unlikely. And I think there's also, there's a wider problem in politics. I'm not saying it necessarily applies to this issue because there are serious things at stake, but there's a wider problem in politics of just trying to get scalps all the time yeah, and exactly. calling for people to go over uh, things that there would be no benefit if someone left the role and someone else came in. Uh, it's something, that kind of revolving chairs situation in politics isn't beneficial in the kind of moving around of ministerial posts. And it's, it's fair to say as well, the bar for a resignation has been, from a senior politician, has been raised quite significantly by Boris Johnson, who broke the law and refused to re resign. <laughs> Just as a, as a, you know, I think if, if you're an SNP minister looking at the last couple of years of politics and you're being called, to, called on to resign over you know, what is a, as you say, a UK-wide crisis or something like that, and you go, excuse me, but you weren't calling for your own Prime Minister to resign when he broke the law, et cetera, et cetera. That's at least... Well, as Douglas Ross sort Douglas of did, did, but that's a wider conversation, did, yeah. Um, but anyway, that's all we've got time for this week. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. Enjoy your drive up north. I know it's going to be long and hopefully beautiful and not covered in rain. We'll speak to all of you next week. Thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.